Good afternoon. I'm Hussein Hakani, and uh, uh, on behalf of Hudson Institute, I'd like to welcome all of you to this uh, event. Our guest today is uh, Harlan Ullman. Uh, Harlan is a strategic thinker and innovator whose career spans the worlds of business and government. He's chairman of several companies <coughs> and an advisor to the heads of major corporations and governments. And he was the principal author of Shock and Awe. Uh, he's a senior advisor at the Atlantic Council and a member of its strategic advisors group. Uh, Harlan is a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy. He served in combat in assignments in Vietnam. Uh, he holds a, 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 an MA and MALD and PhD from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. And today Harlan is going to talk to us about his new book, A Handful of Bullets, which, by the way, is also available uh, for purchase, and Harlan will very kindly sign the books for you uh, as you leave if you want them. Um, the book I found particularly interesting, uh, one doesn't always at Hudson, we sometimes try to uh, discuss subjects, provoke conversation, uh, look at ideas, uh, not always necessarily agreeing with one another. And in this book, Harlan has actually laid out what he considers to be the biggest issues facing the United States and why there is a need for strategic solutions rather than just short-term fixes. Uh, his book goes back in history to tell the story of three transformational legacies of the First World, uh, First World War, and that's why the subtitle of the book is How the Murder of Archduke Franz Ferdinand Still Menaces the Peace. And his argument there is that the first legacy... Uh, led to the creation of a number of potential archdukes, people who could be targeted, and an abundance of bullets, any combination of which could detonate a regional or global crisis. Uh, we see a similar situation right now. The second legacy of the First World War was the partial, and I, the partial is my phrase, the unraveling of the Westphalian state system. We might see a further unraveling of the Westphalian system uh, at a global uh, level. Uh, the final legacy, according to Harlan Ullman, uh, created the four new horsemen of the apocalypse as the major threats and challenges to global peace and prosperity. Uh, I'll let him explain what the four uh, new horsemen of the apocalypse are. Uh, I don't want to steal his thunder. It's very difficult to do anyway, and I'm not into the business of stealing anything anyway. Uh, Alman argues that even after 100 years, these legacies continue to provoke changes to the global world order and trying to contain, mitigate, or prevent disruptions from exploding into global crisis will continue to prove to be a challenge. So with that introduction, I will let Harlan uh, talk to us about the contents of the book. Uh, I will have a few questions for him at the end of that, and then I'll open it to your questions. Uh, hopefully, we will have an interesting and stimulating discussion about the future, both for American strategic policy as well as for what awaits us uh, in the years to come. Harlan. Well, thank you all for coming. Can you hear me in the back? And Hassan, thank you for that introduction. I think after that, we could probably go directly to questions. <laughs> ah. <laughs> uh, let me begin uh, in a different way, because first, I'd like to pay a tribute to Ambassador Haqqani. Uh, Ambassador Connie is probably one of the finest diplomats I've ever met, and when he served his country here, he was clearly regarded as, I think, the most effective ambassador in Washington, which is going quite far. 
But more importantly, just after the raid on Abbottabad and Osama bin Laden's uh, being brought to justice, uh, he went to England, to London, <clears throat> to try to work with the British to see if they could become intermediaries between the United States and Pakistan to try to repair the damage of a relationship that had really reached rock bottom. And he met with people in number 10, uh, in the FCO, Ministry of Defense, Parliament, and other important people. And at that time, he was maligned and accused of writing a memo, which caused him to be recalled from Washington back to Pakistan, where he was caught in the fight between the Supreme Court judge and the opposition and President Asif Sadari. And many of us said, please don't go because your life is in danger. In Pakistan, as you know, it's a very, very dangerous country. Just earlier that year, Salman Tazir, the governor of Punjab, had been assassinated by one of his own bodyguards. But anyway, anyway, Ambassador Khani went back to clear his name. And in fact, it was so dangerous that we arranged a system of daily phone calls to make sure that he would be uh, at least at safekeeping. And finally, because of the efforts of then-Senator John Kerry, uh, Admiral Mike Mullen, who was chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and General Jim Jones, who had been former National Security Advisor, we managed to arrange a situation where Ambassador Khani was able to leave the country and come back here. But his physical and intellectual courage and his integrity were really extraordinary, and I will never forget what he did both to better our relationships between Pakistan and the United States, but also the courage he showed under the most adverse and perverse situation in which truly no good deed went unpunished. So with that, let me uh, answer the question, why would anybody in his right mind want to write a book about World War I, given the hundreds of thousands or millions of columns of books articles written about it. And there are really <clears throat> two issues here, two questions. First, it was the 100th anniversary. And I took a page out of the book of General of the Army and President Dwight Eisenhower, who said, when you're looking at a difficult problem, try to expand it. So was there something about the assassination, aside from starting World War I and leading and, and planting the seeds for World War II and the Cold War, that we have missed? Was there something that really came out of this that has been so far invisible? And second, certainly since Vietnam, but after September 11th, I have been plagued by three recurring questions. I won't be pompous enough to say these are recurring nightmares, but they're pretty close. The first is why is, as every war that the United States started, we have lost. Vietnam was the first. We went into Afghanistan to get Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden and end up declaring war on the Taliban. And I would argue, while that war may not be lost, Afghanistan is worse off today. And then we went into Iraq on trumped-up charges in 2003, which in my mind was the worst geostrategic blunder in our nation's history. But why do we do that? How did that happen? And so these came together in this particular book. And as Ambassador Haqqani noted, what really transpired besides these three legacies that I would call, and why did they transpire? And I argue in the book that what happened was, because of World War I, and indeed the assassination of the Archduke, the forces of the diffusion of power and globalization were unleashed, that over time would be accelerated by the information revolution, which would lead to the empowerment of individuals, groups, and non-state actors. And of course, the information revolution has just put that on a series of uh, steroids. So that somebody like uh, an Edward Snowden or a Bradley or Chelsea Manning, depending upon your choices, 
could influence events so profoundly, or that Al-Qaeda, and now the Islamic State, which I prefer to refer to as the enemies of Islam, could have these great effects really stem from this unleashing of the forces of globalization and diffusion of power. Now, none of this is really new. Maynard Keynes could write that in 1910, sitting in his club, and I use the word his because women were not allowed in clubs in London in those days, he had the world at his feet. He could order, as he said, a giraffe from Selfridges if he wanted one. Of course, it might take three or four months to get there because uh, Federal Express had not yet been invented, but globalization was alive and well in those days even. And in fact, if you go back to the early part of the 1900s, the Royal United Services Institute held a conference on globalization uh, in London. And the diffusion of power, we keep on seeing how it is spread, and simply put, we now see a world in which across the board, power has diffused. And this has led to the empowerment of, as I said, individuals, groups, and non-state actors at the expense of the state-centric system of Westphalian politics. Now, among the legacies are the four new horsemen of the apocalypse, which challenge, in my judgment, not just the United States, but the world at large. The first rider is failed and failing government. And I would argue that this horseman affects states around the world from Afghanistan to Zimbabwe with Washington and Brussels in between. Governments, by and large, are failing. There are lots of reasons for that. Uh, in the United States, I think it's clear that we have a broken system, possibly because um, a political system of checks and balances written by the most brilliant and creative minds of the 18th century may not be able to tolerate the rigors of the 21st century, given the fact that politics have become so divisive that politics has really shifted away from governing to being elected and re-elected. But this is true no matter where you look. The problem in Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan doesn't make any difference. We see this in Yemen yesterday. Governance and governing are the leading problems we face in terms of peace and prosperity and security. Second is economic despair, disruption, and disparity. We see that in the United States. The gaps between rich and poor are growing. The middle class is, even by Republican admission, is being diminished. But that's even more exacerbated around the world when you take a look at conditions in much of the Arab and Muslim world living on $2 a day. Pakistan, you've got 70 or 80 million kids under the age of 21 who are jobless, who are becoming increasingly radicalized, and have no real future. And so this whole issue of economics is going to be very critical. And whereas I don't argue that this is the number one cause of terrorism, because it is not, it is certainly something that is challenging the world at large. And indeed, I don't know what the Dow Jones is doing today, but reports from Shanghai and the stock market there, how far is it down? Well, that's nothing. That's not bad. Um, it could be a lot worse. But what's happened in Swiss, in Switzerland with uh, taking the caps off the franc, uh, you have a very, very, very volatile system. And so that's the second rider. The third rider is ideological violence and extremism in the form of perverted religions. Obviously, Islamists are taking the lead, but you have crazies in any kind of religion. And the problem is that religion is now being used as a political motivator, much as the Nazis used Mein Kampf, and of course the communists used the works of Lenin and Marx as a way of advancing their ideology. And today, in many places, this is really a key problem that we're not addressing well. And last, 
and by no means least is environmental calamity. We see that with Ebola. Last year is a, arguably the hottest year on record, but you take a look at extreme weather patterns from floods and droughts on the west coast of the United States to tsunamis and earthquakes, and of course Ebola. We have to deal with economic, with environmental disparities and environmental calamities. Now, <clears throat> a third of the book goes into corrective ideas and solutions because it's easy enough to identify problems. How do you deal with them? So let me give you a few ideas along the lines, and there are many in the book that range from cosmic to very, very specific ways that we can change uh, the structure of our government, uh, our whole national security apparatus, and focus on dealing with causes and not symptoms of the problems that ail us. Uh, first, in the case of the United States, fundamentally we need to shift to a brains-based or strategic orientation. For a lot of bad reasons, we tend to focus on symptoms and not causes. You take a look, for example, on the so-called war on terror, which I think is a very, very bad misnomer because terror is indeed a symptom and a tactic, but not a cause. We're focusing on the symptoms, the terrorists, but we don't deal in the basic causes. Where, for example, is our counter-narrative to take on the ideology of the Islamists? What are we doing to improve economic livelihoods around the world? And so one of the things we need is a, is a broader strategic mindset of understanding we have to focus on causes. Now, it seems to me that writing a strategy in this particular day and age is difficult because so many regions are different. It's not like the Cold War or during World War II where you had a pretty single threat or danger. But today you've got different regions and different dangers that have to be addressed. My view is that the overall strategy or mindset of the United States ought to be out to secure peace and prosperity. But what makes this different is that we have to do this through partnerships. <clears throat> we have long stopped since being the indispensable power or the single superpower or the unipower. We just do not have the wherewithal to be able to do all the things that we need to do unless we rely far more on allies and partners. Now, obviously, during the Cold War, we did this with NATO, clearly the most successful military alliance in history. But we need to rely much more, and I can go into detail, on brand new partnerships that we can carve out, but partnerships that are going to be far more difficult to execute because in many cases we have shared and not always common interests. I'll give you an example. What do we do about Syria? If we're going to be successful in Syria, we've got to realize that there are two important players in this. One is Iran, and the other is Russia. Now, we and the Russians and we and the Iranians are not enjoying the happiest of relationships now. Ukraine has become a huge problem. But the fact of the matter is that what's happening in the Middle East is far more likely to have negative consequences for Russia because of the spread of Islamism. Look at the size of the populations of, of, of Muslims in Russia. And we have to have shared interests. We obviously do not want Iran to have the bomb. But if we're going to be successful in Syria and Iraq, Iran has got to play a role. But negotiating the Scylla and Charybdis is extraordinarily difficult because no matter what party you are, if you take a step saying we're going to do A with Iran, the other side will say, B, this is the craziest thing and we're going to impeach you. And it doesn't make any difference whether you're a Republican or Democrat. 
Every issue today in the United States has become so polarized and a matter of life and death that it has been taken entirely out of context. <coughs> I'll give you another example, the Keystone Pipeline. On a scale of 1 to 100 in what's going to affect your life, the Keystone Pipeline is a 2 or a 3. On the one hand, there are some positive reasons why it should be done. It is not going to create 42,000 jobs permanently. It is going to have a positive effect. But it's not going to be the ruination of the environment as other people argue. And in any event, what do you think Canada, uh, Canada is going to do with that shale oil and tar sands? It's not going to keep it home for the Mounties to guard. So my point is, here's an issue that should be addressed rationally, but it cannot be done so. So stepping back with that background, what do we do about failed governance in the United States? Uh, as I argue, our political system is broken, and I'm not sure we can put it back together again because checks and balances only operate when there's compromise. And unfortunately, compromise today is extraordinarily difficult, if not impossible, because government has been taken over by the extreme wings of both parties, for good or for ill. If you're a member of Congress, you're afraid of being primaried. That is to say, if you're a moderate, but you come from a certain district, and districts have now been so gerrymandered so that they're not if permanently, but for the long haul, going to be Republican or Democrat. Very easy to get somebody who can oppose you from the left if you're a Democrat or from the right if you're a Republican. So members of Congress are very much restrained as to what they can do, in part because they're fearful of being primaried, but also because both wings have driven people respectively to the left and the right. Now, how do you deal with that, and how do you deal with money in politics? Even if several billions of dollars are spent on politics, people say that's a huge amount of money, it's about one-tenth the amount of money people in the United States spend on deodorant. So let's put all this in perspective. But how do you get around this? Because money is obviously very important. It is the mother's milk of politics. I argue, I argue most importantly, we have to put in a system where universal voting that is to say, mandatory voting becomes the rule. This is done in Switzerland. It's done in Australia. People have got to show up. Whether they vote or not doesn't make a difference. But for national elections, for Congress and the presidency, people have to show up. Now, instead of having 52 or 53 or even 60 percent of Americans voting, supposing 80 or 90 percent went to the polls, what effect would that have? Well, first, it seems to me it would probably require Americans to become better understanding of government. Some people think that Americans are just not very smart. They're just after jobs and education and so forth. They're not interested. That's absolute nonsense. Americans can be made far more interested and in participants in the government because everybody basically says government has failed. If you take a look at opinion polls, very few Americans believe government is working. You had to go and you had to vote or at least show up. You would have to take an interest. Now, if you had 80 or 90 percent as opposed to 50 or 60 percent, what would that do about money? Money really is given by both extremes to influence those extremes in that base. But the base now becomes overpowered by numbers, and there's not enough money to affect those Americans, particularly if they're of the center or center-left, center-right. So I think that would be the first step in democratizing the country, but trying to bring compromise and common sense back and negating the effects of money in both wings. Second, I would also argue that the 22nd Amendment that prevents a president from two elected terms ought to be, ought to be repealed. 
Um, I think for the first six so years of his presidency, George W. w. Bush was the worst president in my lifetime, far and away. But I have to tell you, the last year or two, he became pretty competent. Now, the price of education may have been unaffordable, but why would you waste all that experience? And even though you may be a Bush hater or a Bush lover, it seems to me that a third term or the prospect of a third term is very important so we don't throw away all that experience. I also would argue very strongly of expanding the terms of members of the House of Representatives to four years. I think it's absolutely ludicrous. You're elected for two years, and what are you doing all the time? You're raising money. You're in continued pursuit of money, and you really cannot have an opportunity to govern. So I think that's also important. I also think that uh, I'm reminded when Don Rumsfeld was Secretary of Defense the first time, you know what the length of the defense budget was? How many pages? 80. Anybody want to guess the length of the defense budget today? It's over 1,600. It's absurd. Now, I think one of the things we ought to do um, is to require members of Congress to affirm before they vote on a bill that they have read and understood it. Now, you laugh, and if you had any member of Congress here, they would say that's absolutely impossible. Well, I will tell you, as chairman of a couple of companies, if I said, I'm not going to read that contract, or I'm not going to read that agreement, it's not worth my time, if I were in a public company, first of all, I could be arrested and go to jail because I've been violating the law, which says that you have to certify that everything you say that you put out is, is correct, um, Sarbanes-Oxley Act. But my board of directors or my shareholders would have a fit. So why should we allow Congress to operate on its own rules that defy common sense and that uh, simply are huge inhibitors to good governance? Second, regarding the economies. We live in a fourth world city, a fourth world country. We live in Georgetown off N Street. There are some potholes in N Street, I think, that go to China. Now, why have we not repaired our infrastructure? Everybody talks about the shale gas revolution, right? Billions of cubic feet. How are you going to export it? Ships. Anybody know the number of ports that can accommodate the super tankers that can carry this stuff? Absolutely. It may only be one. But the fact of the matter is, if you're going to use it, you've got to fix the ports. Our electrical power grid in 1980, this is 4,000 years ago, 1980, the Center for Strategic and International Studies wrote a study that said the most critical problem we have in the United States is our electrical power grid. It is vulnerable, and guess what? It's not gotten any better. Internet services, education. We need to repair our infrastructure from soup to nuts. And the model here is a 1954 National Security and Highways Act passed by Eisenhower. Why? Because Eisenhower felt if there's going to be a war, you need to have a highway structure. But Eisenhower also understood if you're going to really stimulate the economy, you had a road structure to complement the railroads. And it was paid for by gasoline tax. So why have we not put in place a national infrastructure bank, which could be monetized by a debt offering, a bond paying 2 or 3% above interest rates over 30 years, and that would be paid for and guaranteed by user fees and tolls? 
which is normally the case in cities and states who do this kind of thing. And by the way, if you wanted to raise a couple of trillion dollars, one way to do it, what about all this money that American corporations are keeping offshore because of tax purposes? It mounts into several trillions of dollars. Supposing you said, we'll give you a tax break. You can bring that money back provided you put it into this infrastructure bank. My guess is you could raise probably both by bond offerings that could be secured over the long term by the government and by repatriating this money, $2 trillion. Now, can you imagine what $2 trillion, if sensibly spent, would do for this country? It would move us into the 21st century. It would also create lasting jobs. And for the life of me, the only reasons I don't see why this has been done, and years ago, John Kerry and Chuck Hagel wrote legislation for a national infrastructure bank. It just fell apart, was never passed. And the only reasons I can think of was because the Republicans are afraid this is going to lead to big government, and the Democrats don't want the private sector to do it. I think this is on strictly ideological grounds. And it can be done so that you had a way of dividing the money among the 50 states. The uh, American Society of Mechanical Engineers every 10 years comes out with a study about where our infrastructure is failing. There are ways that you could put together a panel that could dole out what the projects are and do this above politics. And I think it's absolutely essential that this happen. And by the way, when we deal internationally, why don't we have regional infrastructure banks in Africa, in Asia, um, Latin America, on the same basis that they, are, that they are funded by user fees and tolls over the long term? And I understand the problems with corruption. There are ways around that. But my argument is, despite what the President is going to say tonight in the State of the Union address about raising taxes or whatever, this is on the margin. And I am afraid, given the nature of, of international economics and the fragility potentially in China and elsewhere, that unless we move forward with something like an infrastructure bank, which can really have tremendous effect, uh, we are going to be in a huge economic pickle over the long term. And I hope I'm wrong. Lastly, let me focus on uh, what do we do in the battle against uh, the enemies of Islam. First of all, we need to expand partnerships. Uh, you take a look at what happened in Paris. 17 Frenchmen were killed, and 44 late leaders of countries came together. Millions of people rose up. 147 kids were killed in Peshawar. God knows how many people are being killed in Syria, Iraq, or Afghanistan today, or in Yemen. Nigeria, Boko Haram has killed a couple of thousand people, and the 200 young girls who were kidnapped are still kidnapped. How many leaders of states have come together to protest that? The point is that on the one hand, what we think in the West is an absolute insult to us and an atrocity is not necessarily viewed the same way around the world. And the only way we're going to be able to attack the Islamic State, the enemies of Islam, Al-Qaeda, and these many groups is really through Arab and Muslim countries. And we've really made no arrangements to try to mobilize the GCC, the Gulf Cooperative Council, and possibly link it up with other organizations, such as the Shanghai Cooperative Organization, which has not only Russia and China in the stands, but as observers, Pakistan, uh, Afghanistan and Iran to link up 
as to how do they confront this threat to their own regimes. We've not been able to do it. We also have been really tardy in coming up with a counter-narrative. Now, I understand that you can say that the grand high cleric in, in Saudi Arabia or Egypt has come up, that King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia has, in fact, declared that these are bad people. But we have not been able to come up yet with a counter-narrative to operationalize it, to take on and reverse the propaganda that's being used on the internet and social media much more effectively by these Islamists. They have probably done better because in terms of the backlash they have painted over the incidents in Paris than the Western world has in mobilizing anything. And why we have not been able to do this as an order of top priority remains to me a real quandary. Now I know that the Secretary of State is embracing this. As some of you may or may not know, we've just, when I say we, a new headquarters has been established in Abu Dhabi to try to take on this counter-narrative. But it's still in its formative years, and we need to do a great deal better. But the notion here is that we need to have partnerships in place in which we can be supportive, but we have got to get people in those parts of the world to take the strain and understand what the damages are. Now, having said that, you can ask me, what do I think the chances of any of this being done? And I would not be wildly optimistic. But I'm not being apocalyptic here in terms of where the future runs. I think that if we do not take a strain, the United States is not going to explode. It's not going to implode. That's nonsense. We still have the biggest economy in the world. We're going to have the strongest military. We have all these things in our advantage. But what is going to happen is that there is going to be a market decline in our standard of living, not necessarily for those of you of a certain generation in this room, but certainly for your children and grandchildren and lots of, an and lots of the interns and younger people here, that standards of living are going to decline, and they may decline greatly. And expectations about the future are going to decline. I had this discussion with Brent Scowcroft not long ago, and Brent said, you know, when I was growing up, Gee, we had the Depression, we had World War II, the world was horrible. What's any different today? And I will tell you the big difference today. In the past, there was always a sense of optimism. Even during the Depression, and my parents, who fortunately were not all that badly affected by the Depression, used to remind me that there was still a spirit of optimism. Even in the days of the Cold War of Vietnam, there was always a sense of optimism. And I'm afraid what makes today different from other days is the fact that Americans no longer share the same sense of optimism for the future. Now, whether that will continue or not, I don't know. But it seems to me we have it within our ken. We have it within our capability to do this. But the only way this is going to happen is first we have to shift to a new strategic mindset for the future that is strategy-oriented. And second, we have to engage the American public. The American public cannot be engaged in its own governance. We are going to get the government we deserve. And that is not the government that I would like to see. Thank you, and I'll be welcome. I will welcome your question. Good. Um, you've, given, you've given this room, uh, and, and all those who are watching on their uh, computers, um, a lot of food for thought. But here's where I will begin. I mean, you did say that, of course, chances of all of this happening uh, are not that great. Um, why propose sort of solutions to a problem 
which you know do not have a chance of success. For example, the constitutional amendments that are needed. Isn't that a bridge too far? Some of the other ideas, very practical, possible. Uh, but some of the political ideas, not necessarily all that uh, uh, pragmatic. Um, you raise a very fair question. And I think what one has to do is to begin planting the seeds that eventually can, I hope, flourish. Um, you had a handful of revolutionaries in a small room uh, in Switzerland, and that turned into the revolution that changed Russia into the Soviet Union. Um, Lawrence of Arabia wrote that if you could get 1% of the population engaged, you could take on 99%. And what I hope to do is through this book is to say to Americans who read it or Americans who listen to me, we have these profound problems. And if we are serious, change on the margin will not work. And if you're serious about putting this country on the right course for the 21st century, we have to make some fundamental changes. And therefore, constitutional changes are not out of the question. We've amended the Constitution, what, 28 times? Some of those amendments have been, after the first 10, have not been very smart. The Volcker Amendment preventing drink, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I think at some stage, when situations become desperate enough, people are going to want to put in place, want to know ideas. And so what I'm doing is, as we used to say in the military, prepping the battlefield. Okay. Um, in the, I'm sure that there are people who have comments on it, some of your observations about the Iran, Iraq war, Afghanistan war. Uh, but before people ask it, I'm going to ask you, what makes you say that Afghanistan is worse off today than, say, for example, uh, on the eve of 9-11 when the Taliban ruled it? Um, I certainly don't think so. And similarly, how was Saddam Hussein uh, being in power in Iraq better, uh, for the Iraqis at least, uh, than what they have today? Well, I think the, the second part of your question is self-evident. Um, Iraq is in the middle of a civil war, and Saddam Hussein was incredibly brutal and a bad guy. And if um, you were a Sunni, life was, uh, if you were on the other side, life was not particularly uh, attractive. Um, <clears throat> but having said that, uh, the Middle East was not in turmoil. Um, there was a counterweight to Iran, and a hotbed for terrorism was not allowed to flourish. So I agree with you, Saddam Hussein was an evil man. Having him out of the way obviously is a plus, but the situation in Iraq is far more precarious, far more dangerous, and I would argue for almost every Iraqi far more difficult than it was before September 11th. Case in Afghanistan, obviously nobody wants to live under a rule which you can't fly kites, and the Taliban were reprehensible. But unfortunately, the tribal order has been upended, and what has replaced it seems to me is going likely to be after we withdraw uh, almost perpetual civil war. And so I think if you have body counts and human measures of, of, of despair, Afghanistan is going to be far worse off. But what has happened is that Afghanistan now has become, I think, more of a regional powder keg. 
What's going to happen in Pakistan over Afghanistan, it seems to me, is by no means certain. And I would say it's probably a lot more dangerous now than it was before September 11th. So certainly in the case of Afghanistan and for the world at large, the situation is far off. In terms of Iraq, for Iraqis and the world, the situation is by any measure far worse off. Okay. Uh, there are a lot of other questions too, but I'll let the audience ask them and I might kind of join in every now and then. There's a very interesting line in the book which I'll kind of read right just now. It says that facts have become obsolete and intermingled with opinions. <laughs> uh, so I will give the first right of question to the person who actually thinks that the author is guilty of the same. <laughs> okay, nobody's okay, asked the second that. question. <laughs> so then let's go to the second question. Thank you. Thank you very much. I agree with much with what Can you identify you yourself, please? Uh, Michael Kurtzig, who worked formerly in the Department of Agriculture, worked in the Middle East also. A couple of comments I want to make. First of all, my grandmother was in Berlin in 1914, and when she heard that the Archduke had been assassinated, she said, Jetzt haben wir Krieg. Now we will have a, a war. war. And I, ne I never forgot that. So I have a couple of points about participation by the U.S. public. We are now in two wars, still in Afghanistan, if you are in Iraq. You can't, you can't see anything in this country concerning this war. We're living, living a normal life over here. Uh, would you comment on that? Number two, uh, you talked about expanding the term limits for members of the, con of the House yeah. and expanding uh, and, and having three terms for the president. What do you think of limiting the term limits of the House and the Senate? maybe to five, or maybe two, if you want four years, maybe three terms in the Congress, and maybe two terms in the Senate. What, what do you think about that? Because many people have built kingdoms on this, and people don't have a chance to have their interests there. Thank you very much. Yeah, uh, about uh, term limits, we have them, they're called elections. Now, you will then counter by saying, yeah, but the regions, uh, districts are so gerrymandered, it doesn't make any difference. I'm opposed to term limits, quite frankly. I think it's up to the electorate. But the caveat to that is I think we have to try to un-gerrymander a lot of these districts to make them more open. But universal voting would change that, would change that dramatically, because then I think you would have more people voting, and I think that you would have an opportunity to have uh, elections that would have a wider base. So I don't, I don't agree with the notion of term limits. Obviously, there are a lot of people who can have that. I also don't believe that denying people with experience is really a smart idea. You have a whole new batch of members of Congress who don't have the slightest idea what's going on. And it's not, I'm, not being, I'm not being critical. It's just the nature of the issue. Uh, they don't understand the, the procedures of Congress. They don't understand how things work. It's going to take some time. And one of the things I propose in my book, uh, which probably gets more to your question, we don't have a very good transition plan for people in government. President comes in. What preparation does he really have for the presidency? I mean, I argue that the last three presidents were not experienced and not ready for the job and not prepared for it, and it showed. How do you change that? New members of Congress. You know, Harvard has a one-week course. Well, that's absurd. It's like saying, here's a one-week course in brain surgery. Go out and operate. Um, so what do we do about that? Four-star generals and admirals, when they rotate to a new job, how much time do they have in, in transferring to try to take time off to learn about it? The answer is because Congress has specified the number of flag officers at certain ranks. They have no time. 
But one of the things we need to do, I argue, is change the National Defense University to a National Security University and have mandatory courses there that members of government, both in the executive and the legislature, have to attend, as well as their staffs. This can be done, this can be done online, offline, doesn't make any difference. Because unfortunately, the world is far more complex and complex. Look at regulations today. Look, you know, and I was captain of a destroyer 150,000 years ago. You know, we almost, I could say, raised it to gallons. It was so long ago. It was a lot different. Today, being in the same position, you are so constrained by these things where warfare has become lawful. So you've got to understand a lot of these, uh, these constraints. And I think preparing people when they come into office is essential. And that's one way of getting at the root of the problem that you're Right here in the middle. Hi, I'm uh, Brooks Borland. Um, my question is, you talked about the unraveling of the Westphalian Treaty. Yeah. Um, but wouldn't you say that some of the problems in like the African continent and in the Middle East, like failed government, failing government, economic despair, are because states can't monopolize power in their granted regions? And so a lot of the problems with a lot of the four horses that you mentioned are because the fact that the states there are artificial and they don't actually monopolize control over their area. Well, you've asked a, a very complicated question. Uh, I would argue that, <laughs> let me get myself in real trouble. If we didn't have Sykes-Picot in 1916, I'm not sure we'd be in this mess today. If India and Pakistan didn't divide, I'm not sure we've been in this mess today. I will restrain comment about 19, about Israel and Palestine. Um, and so yes, artificial boundaries have been very, very real. And the problems of the subcontinent in Africa go back, obviously, to colonization and so forth. Um, and so yeah, there are a lot of other roots of the problems. But I would argue that the four horsemen that I just described amply describe what's happening in the parts of the world that you just raised. I mean, what are the problems in Africa? Failed government, economic despair. Uh, you've got obviously rampant uh, religious uh, extremism, Nigeria. I've been, I have been, one of, I've been surprised by two things geopolitically. One, that North and South Korea have not allied. You know, I got over that in 2000 when it became clear they weren't, but I thought that was going to happen. And that Nigeria has not yet imploded. I have been predicting a civil war in Nigeria for a long time, but rather like the uh, economists who have predicted 5,000 of the last two recessions, I have been wrong. But the four horsemen at the root of the problem, and obviously artificial boundaries and colonization help spark that. But the other part of the question was uh, that the state no longer has the monopoly over coercive power. Well, I think in, part, in large part that's, that's correct. Uh, clearly, at home, domestically, states still have power. But that power is becoming diffused by outside groups. And what's really interesting, and one of the most frightening aspects of the dangers that Islamism presents us, is the challenge between safety, privacy, and security. Because what's happened, and, and I don't think Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda really this out, <clears throat> but they have challenged our constitutional rights. Free speech, freedom of religion. I believe in freedom of religion, supposing at Friday prayers, I stand up and say, we have to overthrow the government. Where does free speech start or stop, and where does freedom of religion? And so we have all these challenges. You're seeing it in Europe right now. For example, in the UK, David Cameron has said they're going to pass new security laws, 
which most of the Brits, I suspect, would agree with. France, the same thing, anti-terrorist laws. But the greatest ideological threat, it seems to me, that's being posed or legal threat is by uh, the use of terror to inflict terror and to cause a super backlash. Osama bin Laden did not conceive of three things when he attacked the trade towers. He didn't think they were going to fall down. He thought they were going to stay there as burning monuments. He didn't think that the stock market would lose a trillion dollars of value and the economic damage that would be done. And he certainly didn't anticipate the reaction of the United States coming to Afghanistan and then ultimately into Iraq. The issue here is that the cost exchange ratio, something we don't fully appreciate, is in the favor of the bad guys. I'll give you a couple of examples. The bad guys in Iraq and Afghanistan used booby traps, improvised explosive devices. If you sum up the amount of money that it cost all the IEDs to make, it may be in the millions of dollars. Do you know how much money the United States spent on countering improvised explosive devices so far? Anybody want to guess? It's in the billions. $70 billion. That cost exchange ratio is not in our favor. And so now you have an attack in Paris by two small groups. Think about the counter reaction and blowback that you've caused in those countries the damage that you've done psychologically as well as socially, and then how you can amplify that on social media so that you exploit the damage that you did. Without understanding it, that is a brilliant strategy for the wrong reasons. And so one of the problems is that for the time being, the cost exchange ratio in dollars and in political impact is on the side of the bad guys, and we have to learn how to reverse that. Other questions, comments? Yep. Hi, my name is Alejandro Sanchez. I'm a senior fellow at the Council on Hemispheric Affairs. Um, I was wondering if you can discuss a little bit more the current and future of the U.S. military. Uh, you have the F-35 warplane, which is probably the most expensive plane that will never be used. Uh, you have you mentioned the National Defense University. I just read, I studied there a few years ago. They just let twelve full-time professors go because of budget cuts. So I'm wondering what you think is the where the, this country is going when it comes to its military and it's, if it's being used properly and if it has the proper budget for the proper programs. Thank you. I have two chapters or two appendices in my book. I should say this. I have a chapter in the book on cyber, which I find really, because I come up with a real proposal about how we can deal with a cyber framework. I have a history of the financial crises of 2007, 2008, which believe it or not, go back to 1907 and the financial crisis here, which the year later, credit default swaps were made illegal. And the reason I like looking at this history of how the financial crisis imploded, and it took a long time to do it uh, for a variety of reasons, similarly matches what happened since 1914 and the death of the Arch Archduke. You have this long-term series of cancers that took time to metastasize. And it's a very, very salutary lesson. Now, regarding the Department of Defense, um, first of all, we have an extraordinary military. People say the military is worn out. If you go in the field and say, you've got to go back into Iraq and Afghanistan, they're going to say, great. This is what we're meant to do. Why? Because we have spent a fortune, a fortune, in training, preparing, equipping, 
and paying these people. They are fabulous. Uh, Elaine Cooper, the New York Times correspondent, the other day was telling about how she w she's anti-military. She was in Iraq and she thought the war was wrong until she was embedded with a group of uh, soldiers. And the first mortars came in and the first thing that happened was a couple of soldiers jumped in a nice way on top of her in a trench to protect her from the incoming. That really changes people's mind. That's the, you know, 99.9% .9 of the military. I mean, you have to be impressed. Uh, unfortunately, the real problem with the military today is something that nobody has mentioned, and that is there is a cancer inside the military. And it doesn't has have to do with what's happening in Iraq or Afghanistan or being sent on missions to take on Ebola. The cancer is inbuilt cost growth inside the military, which is exploding. That's pay. Military gets hugely well compensated. Um, you can retire early and you're paid for life. Medical care. And by the way, there are probably hundreds of thousands of Americans who fought, who have got some kind of traumatic brain injury, which has not yet been reported, or at least has, has not become symptomatic. That is going to put enormous pressure on the veterans' affairs and medical expenses. You've got overhead, which is absolutely astronomical. And then, of course, you've got weapon systems. We've cited the, the F-35s, which are going to be a multi-hundred billion dollar buy if we buy, no matter what we do. Aircraft carries $12 billion. All of this is not affordable. But it is these costs. Now, even if we continue defense spending adjusted for inflation, the impact of these costs by the end of the decade, if no action is taken right now, will require a cut of between a third and 40% across the board just because of these inbuilt cost growths. You can't afford the weapon systems that you've designed, and you can't afford the people, and you can't afford the retirement, and you can't afford the health care. And right now, we're working on the margins to do that. The military believes that sequestration will go by the boards and the Congress will spend whatever money is necessary. But even if you spend the money that they believe is necessary, that's not going to be enough. The other problem inside the Pentagon is the fact that we have not been able to transition from a nation really at war in two countries to one at peace. And because you've been able to train, because you've been able to motivate, and because you've been able to equip these soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines, they like what they're doing. As that gets ratcheted back, and any of you who have an opportunity to go on a military base, two years ago, all the gate guards were civilians. Who cut the grass and did all these menial labors? Civilians, because they were all contracted. Who's doing it now? Soldiers, sailors, and Marines, because we don't have the money for these contractors. And so if you were a unit, if you were a ranger, if you were in a submarine, whatever, and you really had the best kit in the world and the incentives, and now your commanding officer said, look, you can't go train. We don't have any money for bullets, but you've got to cut the generals long. And I'm obviously making these anecdotal pieces of analysis to try to make a point. The fact is we have to transition to a new military, and we haven't done that. So if we don't get control of, of this exploding cost growth, and we don't get control of the people issue, we are destined for a hollow force in its own way will be as bad as the hollow force I served in after Vietnam. Those are the two issues that are right in front of us, and so far nobody has been able to recognize those in front of them. Yes, sir. Uh, Henry Hedger, researcher, now retired government. Uh, years ago, when I was a young man, we were in school, 
uh, we learned that Finland was the only country that ever paid its debts to the United States in World War I. Uh, later, we got into the Second World War, and the government did business the same way it did in the First World War. We had this principle of uh, requesting that you know a nation pay its debts to the United States. We called it cash and carry. If they wanted anything in weapons, they'd have to buy it. Finally, when the money ran out, in Britain from 39 to 41, cash and carries replaced with lend-lease. So in time, they would pay for whatever they, they took from us. Right. Uh, I wonder why are we not operating in this way currently? And, and can somehow this type of position uh, come to play again uh, in the future? Uh, like in Iraq, we've, we've spent billions and billions to equip their force. They've lost. <laughs> uh, more equipment is needed. Um, it's a country that clearly has oil. It has money. <laughs> Everybody says they're broke, but well, I don't know how completely broke they are. But uh, shouldn't we try to get money for what we do? Uh, mm -hmm. That would, you know, release the U.S. taxpayer from further burdens. Uh, we're up to 16 trillion already. 18. How far can 18? Or how far can we go uh, before we're in real trouble? <laughs> uh, I'm reminded that Beethoven, who was deaf, said, "I shall hear in heaven," and. Um, you, you first of all, the Brits finally paid off all their debts from World War One and World War Two about five or six years ago, but they finally paid them off. Interestingly, in the first in the first Gulf War, we actually made money. Jim Baker took the tin cup and shook down the Japanese and everybody else, and at the end of the day, at the end of the balance sheet, we actually made more money than we spent on that particular war. Um, I cannot answer why we went into Iraq the second. I mean, I know why we went to Iraq the second time, but it is inexplicable why we did, and why we did it on the basis where we would not have some kind of reimbursement. I think the Bush administration was so optimistic that this was going to be a cakewalk. We were going to be in and out and turn it over to other people that it never dawned on them that this was going to be a, a, a prolonged fight and that ultimately we'd have to go back in. In the case of Afghanistan, Afghanistan's natural resources as some kind of escrow are so far into the future that I'm afraid there's no way of doing that. But I think your point about cash and carry is a good idea, and before we get involved in another intervention, we ought to ask the question, who should pay for it? But because we elect presidents who are not ready for the job when they enter it, and George H.W. Bush was and was probably the last fully qualified president we had, he knew better. But I'm not sure that educating new presidents is necessarily going to lead to the solution that you or I would like. Well, and doesn't it also depend upon the other parties in this case, whether they are willing to pay? So, I mean, visualize a situation in which uh, everybody in the Gulf region had turned around and said to Jim Baker, sure, we want you to fight this war, but we are not paying for it, then you wouldn't have made the profit. So you were lucky at that time that they felt endangered enough to and had the money to pay and the and and it was the gulf yeah, countries kuwait and japan Th they they paid for it right no that's but, right but what would people have paid for iraq i mean who could have paid no for but you went into iraq and you if if you're going to go into iraq and you said all right <clears throat> we're going to do this we're going to turn over equipment but at some stage we are going to get some percentage of your oil revenue we okay. could have done that because we okay. as long as you have the leverage of the upper hand whether it's because the other guys are scared witless, or because you just have power, it's something that you have to think through. Hmm. But we didn't do it in Vietnam either, but I'm not sure what resources Vietnam had. Um, other questions, comments? 
everybody's talked out. I guess. Well, thank you very much, Harlan, for joining us. Uh, the book, uh, A Handful of Bullets, is available for those of you who want it. Harlan will definitely sign it. I'm sorry we didn't anticipate uh, the depression at the end of the conversation, so we are not giving out free tablets of Paxil along with the book, but I'm sure you can manage without them uh, <laughs> and, and, and still like the book. Thank you, Harlan. Well, thank and you thank very you much. Thank you all for coming.